We are studying the book of Ephesians, and if you want to turn there, I promised you it wouldn't take 12 years to get through Ephesians. I'm starting to wonder about that. <laughs> this, this passage that we're looking at here, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, is so incredibly rich and lays such a foundation that it's important for us to really understand what the Holy Spirit is showing us through the Apostle Paul. So let's once again look at this text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray together. Father, we just pause once again and we ask that you would please help us. What is in these, these four verses is so rich, so deep, so all-encompassing from eternity past to eternity future and all of the meaning of all of life is all poured into these short verses. We ask that you would help us. We ask that you would help us to as it were, get on your wavelength to understand what you're doing and, and what wonderful, glorious things you have done and how we have been made a part of it. Help us, we pray. Give us grace, we pray. We're asking you to help us to think radically different this morning than how our culture thinks, to think all 180 degrees opposite the way we have been taught to think and has been blasting in our ears and in our eyes all week long. And now we're supposed to turn around and be the opposite of that. Father, we need your grace. We need your help. We're people of this world. We need, we pray, help us to see you and to see clearly who you are and what you're doing and what you want to see at work in us and how glorious your grace is. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. I want to start off this morning with an illustration, okay? The illustration is this. Imagine a king, but not like an old king. Like, imagine a present-day king. Like King Charles, he's the king of England. Imagine somebody like King Charles. Like, he's really filthy rich. He's got all these mansions and everything like that. And imagine this king decides that he is going to buy an island in the ocean, a, a big island out in the ocean. He's going to buy this island. Kind of like what, you know, celebrities and people like that do. He's going to buy this island. He's going to build a beautiful house for himself there. But then he's going to build all kinds of other houses there. And there's all, they're each going to have their own pool. And there's going to be, you drive golf carts in between them. And there's, there's going to be uh, restaurants there. And there's going to be beaches everywhere. It's going to be like a resort. It's going to be like this amazing resort. And this king wants to show what a gracious and loving king he is. And so what he does is he goes to a very, very nasty prison in his country. And there's like... 2,000 prisoners in there, and they're, they're the worst of the worst, okay? And so what he does is he pardons them all of all of their crimes. He just completely pardons them and sets them free. And then he moves them onto the island with himself, and he gives them each a house. 
Because he wants to just show how kind and how forgiving and how generous and how loving he is. And so he puts them all on this island with him. Good idea? Not at all. <laughs> okay? Not at all. Why? Why is that a bad idea? Well, he's taking nasty, violent, mean, lustful gangs of guys that beat each other up and hate each other. He's pardoning them of all of their crimes and giving them a clean slate. He's putting them on this island. And I will guarantee you, before long, the island will not look like paradise. It will look like the prison again. Why? Because nothing has changed in their hearts. Nothing has changed. And dear friends, this is not God's plan for us, okay? This is not God's plan. God's plan of grace is much deeper than this, much greater than this. Now, obviously, you're seeing the parallels between the king and God, the island and, and heaven, and eventually a new heavens and new earth. God's plan is way deeper than this. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, I want you to look at the text before us because we've been looking at this, uh, this text, and I kind of want to set the scene for us. So far, what we've seen is that God is working out this plan, this great plan. And by the way, that's one of the themes of the book of Ephesians, that God is actually working out a plan that started way before the world began. For instance, look at verse 5. According to the good pleasure of his will. All right, That means God is doing something according to the plan that he thought was a good plan, and he's working that out. Look at verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who's God's counselor in verse 11? He is. His will is. God is working out all of the plans, this plan that he has come up with. It's seen really crystal clear in chapter 3. Flip over to chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse uh, 9. He's talking about the riches that we have in Christ. And he says, And to make all to see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, God is opening up this amazing plan and he's doing it through the church and he's doing it for all to see. And what is the plan? Well, what do we looked at so far? We'll look at verse 4. God chose a people in Christ before the foundation of the world. And the book of Revelation tells us, John tells us, as he sees a vision of these people, he says it's a vast number that no man can count from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God's, God has chosen, he's working out this plan, and the plan involved choosing a people before the foundation of the world. And that's what we've looked at so far. Now look at the text because there's three reasons in this text for which God has chosen those people in Christ Jesus. Number one, look at verse four. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, or in order that, we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That's number one. Number two, having predestined us to or into or directed toward adoption. The second thing is adoption. And then thirdly, look at verse six, 
to the praise of the glory of his grace. So God's plan involved choosing a people before the foundation of the world in order that those people would be holy, in order that those people would become his children, and in order to show through that process how amazingly rich in grace God is. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at the first of those, holy and without blame. This is God's plan, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Flip over to chapter 5 and look at verse 25. This clearly has been God's plan and is God's plan. When Paul teaches in Ephesians, uh, did I say Romans? Ephesians 5, okay? Ephesians 5, 25. It says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, here we go, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she might be holy and without blemish or blameless. It's the exact same phrase that's used in chapter 1. And so God's will is, is that these chosen people would become holy. Now, he's not talking about justification here. He's not talking about justification, that process by which all of our sins are instantly forgiven, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, and the righteousness of Jesus is put upon us. It involves that, but it's more than that. That, of course, appears in verse 7. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches. That's, that's part of it, justification. But salvation involves more than justification. It's more than the, the king uh, pardoning all of our crimes in prison, it involves that, but it's more than that. It involves also, salvation involves transformation, change inside. And that, that, that appears in the scriptures. Look in, in Ephesians, I'm sorry. Look at verse five, chapter 2, verse 5. He said we were dead in trespasses and sins, but look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with him. Now, there's that new life, that new birth, that regeneration, that new creation. God makes us a new person and transforms us. And from that transformation, we're supposed to be different. Look at chapter 5 and verse 8. Chapter 5 and verse 8. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. By the way, there's adoption there. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. And so these transformed people, these children of light, are to walk in their light. That's this being holy and blameless. Look at chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. By the way, there's adoption again. And walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and sacrifice and a sweet-smelling aroma. God's children are to walk. Grace, as God's grace comes to us, it not only pardons us of all of our sins, but it gives us a new heart. It transforms us within. And that powerful work of grace is then to produce within us New life is to produce within us holiness. It's to make us like God, like Jesus as, as our elder brother. Now, we have to be careful here as we're going to start to talk about holiness here. We have to be careful about something here. We have to be very careful that we don't now slip back into an understanding that salvation is by works or merit. It is not. Salvation is of grace. 
And it is very clear that even the new birth is an act of grace. Look at chapter 2 and verse 5 again. Even when we were dead in trespasses and he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This was a work of grace making you a new person inside. It wasn't of works. You didn't merit it. It was of grace. Look at verse 8 of the same chapter. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is by grace. Holiness does not merit grace. Holiness does not earn salvation and grace. Holiness is a fruit of grace. And that's why I've entitled this sermon, Grace Produces Holiness. In fact, look at verse 10, the very next verse in chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created, there's the new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk within them. And so God gives us a gracious gift of salvation. Pardon of all of our sins, the new birth makes us alive for the purpose that we would become holy people. Now we got a problem, big problem right now. Right off the bat, we're faced with this big problem. If God's goal is holiness, we got a problem. Here's our problem. In our culture, less and less as time goes on, do we even understand what the word holy means, what holiness is. In fact, I guarantee you this week, you probably never heard the word holy. Not at all. Now, if you did hear the word holy this week, it was used in an expression, holy cow, holy cow. Now, that's the, the nice guy or the Christian guy at the workplace. How it's usually used now, believe it or not, holy is attached to human excrement, okay? That's the phrase now, all right? And that's it. That's it. That's all our culture knows about holiness. In fact, I believe that if you were to go to the average person and say, hey, you know, the Bible says that God is holy. What does that mean to be holy? They'll be like, uh, hmm, wow, <laughs> good question, good question. I don't honestly know. In fact, when was the last time you heard somebody say to you, wow, he is a holy man, or she is a holy woman, or I just want to be holy. Or I, I hope that as I grow in grace, I will, I will grow in holiness. We, we don't even know. In fact, to be honest with you, and this is what I'm going to try to provide a solution for this morning, we may not even understand. You may have a hard time struggling. So let's start at the beginning. What is holiness? What does the word mean? And what does it mean that God is holy? Well, the word, the root meaning of the word holy, as we find it in the Hebrew language, which the Old Testament was written in, and then in the Greek language, the root meaning of the word holy, and I'm going to give you several sort of kind of words to define it. So, so try, to, try to love God with all your brain right now. Try to just, try to grab this stuff. Try to, try to understand this. The word, the root meaning holy, the word meant different. Different in the terms of being unlike. So not like, oh, I'm going to have, I'm going to have uh, chocolate ice cream tonight, and then tomorrow night I'm going to have something different. I'm going to have vanilla. No, because ice cream and ice cream is ice cream. It's kind of the difference, though, between, say, a little toy rocket and standing beside and feeling the ground rumble a real rocket. The difference means unlike other above. And that's another. Holy meant other. 
in terms of otherness, something that is, that is so completely something else than what the common person is. Holy meant separate, separate. Holy meant special, set apart, sacred, above us. That's what holy meant. And that's why in the passage that Jeff read for us today, and by the way, Jeff, I'm glad you read today because I wanted a big, strong, manly voice to read that passage today. We need a big, strong, manly voice to read that passage today because that passage is God coming in all of his intimidating reality of who he is to Mount Sinai and saying, I'm about to come to Mount Sinai. Stay back. Stay back. Put a fence around it. Don't let anybody near because you can't approach me. And if you approach me, you will die. And this is actually God warning the people, not because he's mean and nasty, because he's, he's trying to protect them and preserve them. And Moses goes walking up to the mountain and it's all filled with smoke. So Moses doesn't see him either. And Moses doesn't die. And God says, get back down there. They're not taking you seriously. Moses says, no, no, I got this. No, God, we got this. They're taking. God says, no, get back down there so that I don't break out and they die and they see me. This is this idea. When God first met Moses, he said, take your shoes off. The very first thing that God says to Moses, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. I'm here. I'm special. I'm different. I'm distinct from you. Take your shoes off. Show reverence. You're not me. You're not even close to me. And so take your shoes off and be reverential in my presence. That's why they're in the temple. There was a curtain and God and the Ark of the Covenant was back there, and we were here, and nobody was to break go through that curtain except the high priest after elaborate sacrifices. That's why when the Ark of the Covenant was mistakenly put on a cart, and they were taking it through, and David was taking it uh, through back into town, and the Ark slid, and a guy named Uzzah saw the Ark sliding, and he said, oh no, the Ark's going to hit the ground. And he put his hands out, and he touched the Ark, and he pushed it back onto the cart, and God killed him instantly. And David and the guy said, stay, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 who? Everybody backed away from the ark. And they said, let's go back to the Bible. Let's go back to the Bible. What did we do wrong? Oh, those rings are on the, on the ark because priests who have had already been sacrificed and cleansed with blood were to slide these poles through those rings and carry the ark. Oh, we didn't handle the ark right. That's what holy means. God is holy. And it primarily, it, if, if you want to organize our thinking here, that's, that means two things. Number one, God is absolutely distinct from us. God is absolutely, infinitely majestic and exalted and great. You could call this his majestic holiness. I'm going to put some quotes on the board. We're ready for the first one, guys. I'm going to put some quotes on the board here. <clears throat> This is from Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, and he's referring to this majestic holiness, and he says this. It includes such ideas as absolute unapproachability. Just think about these words. Let them sink in. We're not used to thinking about this. Our life is so banal and so trivial anymore. Absolute unapproachability and absolute overpoweringness or awful. Majesty. Now, I know you're not used to that word, but it's a great word, and I wish we'd have never lost it. We now use awful for yucky, icky, ooey. But awful to our forefathers meant full of awe, full of awe. We now use awesome, which is somewhat awesome, uh, awe, full of awe. 
But this was awful. The whole, there's this song in the Trinity hymnal, and unfortunately they messed it up and changed it. Before Jehovah's awful throne, ye nations bow, ye tongues confess. And now it's before Jehovah's awesome throne. It's like, oh, cool, groovy, awesome. And I just wish they wouldn't have done that. But listen to this awful majesty. It awakens in man a sense of absolute nothingness, a creature consciousness. Now, don't think gooey creature. Think a human creature, a human created being. It makes us feel very created and frail or creature feeling, leading to absolute self-abasement. This is what it means to be small in the presence of something so great. I imagine this is what it's like. I haven't had this privilege yet. I, I hope, Lord willing, I'll get it before I die. Is to stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I know some of you have. Stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon. I did stand at the foot of the Victoria Falls while the ground shook and while rain was constantly coming because it was so great. And you suddenly feel so little and so frail. Imagine standing, standing shocked, as a huge tornado came right at you and you were shocked and paralyzed with fear, at that moment, that feeling of littleness and nothingness and, and I'm absolutely small in its presence. That's what this is. This is who God is. This is what it means to stand before this God. And so God is vastly, superiorly, infinitely different than us infinitely above us. He should, he should inspire, he does inspire awe and majesty and carefulness and fear and reverence. And some say that this attribute of God in one sense is the foundational attribute of God because he has a holy temple and a holy priesthood and the Bible is a holy book and, and God's, God's people were a holy people and the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit who lives within us and this God, all that he is, all that he does is holy. Even think of it this way, and I didn't read it, I, I, we didn't have time, but I was going to read to you Isaiah 6, where the angels are surrounding God, covering their eyes, covering their feet, and with two wings they're, they're, they're flying, and they're saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They're repeating themselves, holy, holy. Wait a minute. Those are sinless angels. They couldn't be in the presence of God without sin. They're Holy. But they recognize that he is holy in a different way, that they're holy. Holy, holy, holy. They, they're, they're guarding, they're guy, they have their hands, their wings over their eyes. They have their wings over their feet. Many see that as, as dishonoring in the, in, the, in the presence of, you know, remember God says, take off your shoes. And, and, they're, and, they're, and they're, they're saying, holy, 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 thrice holy. So that's one, his majestic holiness. But then secondly, it tied into his holiness is what's called ethical holiness. Ethical majesty, I'm sorry. Ethical majesty. And it's, it still has that same idea of separate, distant, apart, above, sacredly over. But this time, the effect is sin. God is separate from sin. God is separate from sinners. God is separate from everything that is evil. Everything that is bad. Why? Because God is holy. God is morally perfect. God is morally majestic. God is ethically perfect. God is good through and through and through. God is infinitely good. Listen to these words. Infinitely good. Infinitely pure. No limitations. Infinitely righteous. 
And this is why sometimes God is described as light. There is no darkness in him at all. No shadow, no stain, no, no love for sin, no interest in sin, no, no desire for sin. Never had a thought occurred to him of sin at all. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, is light, and in him is no darkness at all, no stain, no sin. God is ethically perfect and pure and infinitely so. In Job, it says this, Job 34, 10, therefore listen to me, you men of understanding, far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. This is who God is. In fact, sin sickens God, repulses God. God hates sin. He's so pure and holy. In Habakkuk 1.13, it says this, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. I was recently sent in the mail, and I, I think my subscription lapsed, but was sent in the mail, the Voice of Martyr magazine. I, I love the Voice of Martyr magazine. It's free. You guys should get it if you can. If you just sign up and get it. And it, it, it humbles me and it redirects me and it reorients me every week. But this one was about a woman, a young woman who came to Christ. She came to Christ in Africa. And uh, she shared Christ with some of her family and friends. They came to Christ. And then some really radical, nasty Muslim uh, uh, radicals came into their town and gathered her and all of her friends together. And with a machete, they, they beheaded every single one of her friends and family members right in front of her. They didn't behead her because she had a child with them, and they actually then kidnapped her, and she was kidnapped for a period of time, and then she was released. But they beheaded each one of the people in front of them. Now, I can't imagine with a machete that you can actually just make this clean and simple thwack. I imagine you're hacking. But then they took the heads and they boiled them in a big pot to warn people. And they said this, become a Muslim or die. That's what you do, become a Muslim or die. And when I heard that, I was just sickened. She saw her sister. She saw her mother. She saw her, her nieces and nephews beheaded in front of her. I was sickened by it, just repulsed by it. Dear friends, that feeling of sickness and repulsiveness is how God feels about every sin every sin, when we gossip, when we lust, when we make fun of people and call them names. That's why, that's why Jesus said that when you call somebody an idiot, God sees that as murder. It sickens him as if you murdered that person. If a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, it's a, it, it, it's, it's the same. It's, to God, it sickens him as much as if he had actually committed adultery with her. God is so morally pure, so morally different than we, we are. But then it does another thing for God. It angers him and causes him to feel a vengeful wrath. Now, we feel this as well. We feel this as well because we're image bearers of God. We feel this as well. Do you ever, do you ever, it was, uh, this is the way I am. If I hear of a man who beat up a woman, a man who beat up his wife, or a man who beat up a woman. I've actually been in the hospital with a woman who was beaten by her husband, okay? 
Or think of a person, a man, who either beats up or sexually abuses a small child. I go through the phase of being sickened by it. But then I go through the phase of wanting to grab some friends of mine and form a posse and go beat the heck out of the guy. I'm so angry, I just want to beat the heck out of the guy. That's the way God feels about every sin. God hates sin, and he wants to punish it, end it, and make things right. That's what he wants to do. And God is so pure that he feels that vengeance and hatred to all sin. And that's why you have this sort of strange word that jumps out at you in Ephesians 1. See, look at Ephesians 1, 3. There's all these happy words, all these beautiful words in Ephesians 1. Blessed is God who blesses us with every spiritual blessing. God's choosing people in verse 4 in love. In verse 5, God's predestining and adopting people by his son. In verse 6, God's glory is being praised, the glory of his grace. And verse 7 has redemption. And verse 7 has forgiveness. And all of these things abound to us in verse 8 in wisdom and prudence. And then in verse 7, you have this ugly word, blood. Blood. Look at it there. Blood. Why is there blood there? Because this is how a holy God has made all of those blessings possible. This is how a holy God says, this sin repulses me. This sin must be punished. This sin must be vindicated. Justice must be done. And so now you see a bloody body on a bloody cross laboring for breath, beaten to a pulp, and that person is the very son of God. The very son of God. And God is punishing sin upon his son that justice would be done and we wouldn't be punished. And the only way I can stand before such a holy God is for the bloody death of his son to occur to take care of my sin because God is a holy God. And that's why there's lambs and lambs were sacrificed and blood was shed and hands were put on to prepare us for Christ because God is holy and he hates sin, all sin. And not one person, including myself as well as you, will ever get to heaven apart from that bloody, bloody lamb who's paying for our sins and making things right that the holy and just God can forgive us and cleanse us. Burkhoff goes on to say this. If a man reacts to God's majestic holiness, that's the first type of holiness we looked at, with a feeling of utter insignificance and awe, his reaction to the ethical holiness, that moral purity, reveals itself in a sense of impurity, a consciousness of sin. Otto, who's a, a author he's quoting, says of the response to him, it is mere awe mere need of shelter from the tremendum. That's a Latin for the inglorious, tremendous ethical purity of God. Let me read that again. It is mere awe, 
a mere need of shadow from the tremendum. It has here been elevated to the feeling that man is in that man in his profaneness is not worthy to stand in the presence of the Holy One, and that his entire personal unworthiness might defile even the holiest holiness himself. In the presence of such purity, human beings immediately feel defiled. And immediately feel that they shouldn't be here in seeing such bright moral purity and goodness. That's why in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, Isaiah says this when he sees God. And he sees the angels singing, holy, holy, holy. And he sees God high and lifted up. And it says this, and I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was beholding moral majesty and moral purity and absolute majesty and absolute purity. And he says, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble. And this will help us to understand. This vision of God as holy will help us to understand Ephesians 1, chapter 4. It says this. Just as he chose us, this holy God chose us in him, in his son Christ, for seeing the bloody cross, for seeing the plan of redemption where Christ would purchase, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame. You see, dear friends, to get on God's island... He's not just going to pardon us and leave us under the reign of sin with our sinful natures and our eyes lusting and our mouths being foul and all of these things. He's not gonna, heaven would be hell as soon as we showed up. He's going to make us holy. His plan is that we would be holy. And this is a very, very important plan. It's very much a part of it. In fact, listen very, look and listen very carefully to this next verse. Hebrews 12, 14 says this, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You don't get on the island without holiness. That doesn't, it's not your ticket to earn your way. Grace must produce holiness in you. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13 says this, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace. There we go, friends. There's grace. The grace that is to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, there we go. There's, there's uh, adoption. So we have grace, adoption. Same thing Paul has in Ephesians 1. Not conforming yourselves to, by, to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, the old person, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Guys, I'm going to skip the next, uh, the Hebrews one. I'm going to go right to the Romans one. So what does this look like then? Okay, I'm supposed to be holy. Now, how, what does holiness look like? How, how, what do I, you just told us in our culture we don't have a clue what holiness is. So what is holiness? How, what would it look like if I'm supposed to be holy then? What's God, what's grace supposed to produce in me? Well, the answer in one sense is very simple. Just look at Jesus. He was the holy, sinless man. We have the four gospels. Look at Jesus. In fact, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, it says this. 
For whom he foreknew, again, doesn't it sound like Ephesians 1, chose. He also predestined, there's chosen, to be conformed to the image of his son. There's holiness. To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now look who's going to be on the island, God's island. A whole bunch of brethren who look like, act like, think like, respond like, have instincts like Jesus. God's plan was to save you and to make you holy, to re-transform you back into the image of his son, to change you and I inside and out and make us holy people. Not only that, we have the directives of Scripture. The directives of Scripture is pointing us out. What does it mean to be holy? You're in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 4.25. Look at Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth to his, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Stop lying. Verse 26, be angry, but do not sin, and do not let the, wrath, the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Stop being so sinfully angry. The devil's getting a foothold. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor with his hands. Quit being a thief. Go get a job. And not only make money for yourself, but look at this. Make enough money to give to somebody else, too. Verse 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification. Only, don't let foul junk come out of your mouth. Only thing that should come out of your mouth should be what will build people up. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by which you were sealed when the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all mouths. Get rid of all this junk. Get rid of all this old stuff, all this old man that you were, verse 32. But be kind. Be kind. That's holiness. Be tenderhearted. Care about people around you. Feel, feel their need. Feel, be sympathetic. Forgiving one another. Extend forgiveness. That's holiness. Even as God in Christ forgave us. Verse 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love as Christ also loved us. Look, he's your model. Follow your model. Verse 3, but fornication and all uncleanness, that's all types of sexual sin, or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Look at the next phrase. As is fitting for saints. What are saints? It's the word that is used. It's, a say, it's hagios. It's the same word that the word holy is. You could put in there holy ones. See, you're the holy ones now. So there should be no sexual immorality, none whatsoever. No, no uncleanness, no covetousness, nothing making, making that, 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 that's not what you're supposed to be. You say, well, how do I be all of this? Paul goes on too. Look at, look at, look at what he says in chapter 5, verse 18. Don't be drunk anymore. Stop getting drunk. But be filled with the Spirit. Verse 20, give thanks. Verse 21, submit to one another. In the fear of God, if a brother comes to you or a sister comes to you pointing out sin in your life, submit to them. Say, thank you for sharing that with me. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Children, obey your parents, chapter 6 and verse 1. Uh, employers, employees, treat one another correctly. This is what holiness is. It's the way we live our lives. We're going to talk about more about this next week. You say, well, how do I do this? Well, 
You've been saved. If you've been saved, if you have a new heart, if you've been forgiven, if you've been justified, if you've been born anew from above, if you have the Holy Spirit living within you, then you have that grace in you that should be working out holiness in your life. And now your job is to walk in the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. By the Spirit, put to death your sins. Resist temptation. Grow in the fruits of grace so that the fruits of grace will replace the wicked sins that are in our lives. That is who we're to be. We're to grow in grace. So let me just leave you by saying this. Please, take away from this sermon, I'm supposed to pursue holiness. Let me read the verse again. We won't put it up on the board. I, I messed up. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, I want to give a warning. I want to give a warning right now. I don't know how much my generation of Christians need this warning, but I do know that the younger generation needs to hear this warning. You, those of you in your 40s, 30s, 20s, teens, you need to hear this warning. Don't be deceived that holiness is optional. Don't be deceived that holiness is optional. Why am I saying this? I am saying this because there's tons of lies going around right now in Christian circles. And it comes out to being holiness is optional. There are many people who would hear the sermon, many people professing to be Christians, many people who are very popular in the Christian circles today in the blogosphere who would hear what I just preached today and say, uh, you know what, those old fuddy-duddy fundamentalist guys, you know, yeah, look at the gray beard. Look at the bald head. That, what's he know? What's he know? We got Jesus. We got the cross. We got grace. That's all legalism. These, these sort of, there's these on fire Christians. You see, what's happening today is that people are so falsely understanding grace. That's why I entitled this sermon, Grace Produces Holiness. You want to find grace? You got a Geiger counter. You're trying to find radioactive. Here it is. You want to find grace? Find a holy person. There's grace. Grace produces holiness. Where grace is, holiness comes. But what's being lied about today is you don't need that. And so what do you have going on today? And this, I know this is happening. I know it's happening today in this world. I know it. I talk to other pastors. I talk to young people. I know this is happening. Christians who go to their college Christian fellowship and then sleep together. Christians who get high together and smoke pot to the glory of Jesus. Christians who get drunk. Christians who tell the raunchy jokes just like all everybody else does. Supposed Christians who love God, money more than they love God love their career more than they love God, live for their success, their money, their success, their luxuries, their toys make them happy. They're covetous. They're idolaters. Men who pour, pour over porn. Dear friends, don't be deceived. And dear friends, this is not Todd talking. This is God talking through his word. Look with me to chapter 5, verse 3. But fornication, all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you. Fornication is any sexual activity outside the, 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 the covenant of marriage. 
There's to be no sex outside the covenant of marriage. There is to be no premarital sex. There is to be no, no hookup sex. There is to be no homosexual sex. There is to be no uh, sexual chat rooms. There is to be no sex alone in front of a computer, in front of pornography. There is to be no sex apart from marriage. That's what the holy God says. Okay? I hope that's crystal clear because you're all, we're all going to stand before God. Notice what he goes on to say, though. Verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, rather giving of thanks. Now here's the deception. This is where the devil wants to get you. He wants you to think that you can be a Christian and still do these things. Verse 5, for this you know, no fornicator, sexually unclean person, because that word means sexually unclean, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of God, Christ and God. That's Paul's way of saying you will not get on the island. He's talking to Christians. Let no one deceive you, Ephesian Christians, with empty words. Grace, grace, Jesus died on the cross. And they make it, they make it empty. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Fornication, pornography, sex, idolatrous love of money. Jesus was bloodied to death because of God's hatred of these sins. And for those who have not fled to Jesus and find in him true grace and true life and true vitality, for those who do not find life in Jesus, God is going to bloody them when his wrath comes against those who are not safe in Jesus. And that's why I say to any of you who are here today who are not Christians, you say, well, I'm not ready to become a Christian. You say, well, I'm just kind of holding it off. Kids, maybe some of you here say, I'm, I'm not interested in this. Or maybe you just love the world. You don't want to give it up. Or maybe you have that, set, that special sin that you're holding on to. I want to warn you. I want to warn you. Jesus told a parable of a man who built bigger barns and then said, ah, I'm good, I'm good, I got all my money, I'm good. And Jesus used this phrase, this night your soul will be required of you. Dear unbeliever who is here today, what happens if this night your soul is required of you and you stand before the holy God? before one of absolute majesty and greatness, you will feel so undone, so scared, so small, so trivial, like a worm wallowing in the dust before this majestic being, and then to see that he has absolute moral purity, and he is light, and he hates sin, and he has a vengeful wrath to destroy sin. Oh, you would wish at that point, let me stand before a tornado. Let me stand before a tsunami. Let me stand, oh, may the mountains cover me. Let me stand before an earthquake. Not stand before him. And you will stand before him defenseless. And you will look ugly and wretched and foul and rebellious and his anger will be toward you. Dear ones, I'm going to stand before God 
as a sinner too. I'm going to stand before God as a sinner. God knows everything about me. He knows everything I've ever done. I'm going to stand before God as a sinner too, but I am not going to stand before God defenseless because Jesus will be at my side. He will be my righteousness. He will be my sacrificial lamb. He will be my, the forgiveness of sin. His blood has already been shed, so mine won't. He will be my salvation. His spirit lives within me. And that was so real that I had these strange new hungers and thirstings after holiness. Dear ones, do not stand defenseless before God. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll accept you. He will love you. He will take you. It's almost as if he hugs you and, and his blood from his hands inside is, all, is covering, covers you then. And he will put his spirit within you and you will desire to be like him and grace will produce holiness in you too. May God do this miracle in every single precious soul who's here today. May God save you. May God work in our lives. May we be a holy people to God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We are nothing. You are everything. We are a vapor. We're like a flower of the field who's going to shrivel up so soon. You are eternal, everlasting, glorious in God. You are holy. You are beautiful beyond description. Angels are worshiping you now by the very greatness of your glory. Oh, Father, why would you, such a holy God, have grace upon us? Why would you accept to show forth the glory of your grace? Father, thank you that you are love. Thank you that you love us. And thank you that you provide a way not only for us to be freed from prison, of our sins, but to be liberated and restored and renewed and made on the pathway to be holy. Father, help every Christian member of Crossroads, help each one of us to pursue holiness with everything we've got. And Father, for those who right now are defenseless before you, oh, please preserve their life and bring them to you. Save them, I pray. Don't let them die on the way, Uncle Church. Don't let them die this week. Before they come to you, please save them. Please, please, we pray. Let them flee into the arms of Jesus. We praise you. We quiet and humble ourselves before you right now. The great and holy God. We glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.